You will want to get your Bibles open or turned on uh, to Romans chapter 10, and we will uh, be studying together verses 5 through 13 this morning. And as you're doing that, I just want to ask you to think about this. If you were tomorrow to ask uh, a coworker, someone at work, what do you think? How do you think someone can be right with God? What would you hear in response? Well, I think you would most likely hear an answer something like this. Maybe I don't really know. Probably just be a good person. Probably, you know, do your best. If you were to ask that same person, how is a person saved? You might get a confused look as they might not really know what you were talking about. You might also hear them say something like, well, I don't know that I really think anybody needs to be saved. And that's what a lot of people say. And yet, if you were here last week, you may remember we saw as we studied the uh, end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10, that uh, we all really deep down in our core, we know whatever our religion may be, what, whatever our spiritual views or our non-religious views may be, we all know that the world is not right. We all know it. And the simplest we saw and yet most profound way that we all know it has to do with this universal longing all of us have to be righteous, to be righteous. Now, I, I told you last week, we don't usually think about it like that. We probably don't use words like that, but that's really what it is. And, and I told you that, that Paul shows us that righteousness is fundamentally about our rightness before God about our acceptance or about our sense of assurance that we are, are loved. And everyone, everyone, religious or not, spiritual or not, wants to know that because we are all hardwired to know and want to know that we are okay. We are hardwired to demonstrate that, that sense of being okay to ourselves and to those around us, to show others that we are in the right. And if not before God, if that's not what we're thinking about, then we are certainly thinking about that in terms of everyone around us. And this is the reason we said last week why we are so often not at ease with ourselves. It's the reason why we, we so often don't feel at peace and we feel kind of naked and exposed like we just don't fit, like something's missing. It's this existential ache and almost everyone feels it. And I think it's kind of interesting in our day about the only vocabulary we have for this is, is therapeutic or psychological. And, and in our culture right now today, we think that the answer to that ache, that sense of we don't fit, that sense of we don't belong, that sense of I don't know who I really am is just to keep looking deeper and deeper and deeper into ourselves. Notice this, looking desperately to find something in us that we have never been able to find there before. So what is it? What, what is it that makes us so not at ease with ourselves, that, that makes us feel naked in our own clothes? What is it? And I am telling you, Paul is telling you, it is this longing to be righteous. And again, we don't call it that, but that's what God's word tells us it really is. And inside of this, this longing to be righteous is this question that is ultimately being asked in, in Paul's terms. 
And it's the question, how can we be saved? How are we, we saved? And, and the Bible connects those two ideas of righteousness and salvation. Uh, the Bible tells us righteousness is about being right before God, about our right standing, our acceptance with him. And, and the question becomes, well, how do I know I have that? How do I, I, I know that I'm in the right with God, that God loves me, that God accepts me? Can I know that? Can I know it for sure? Because God is holy and we know that we are not. And so we have to wonder how, how we can be in a relationship of love and joy with him with, without fear. And, and this is what Paul is talking about in Romans. He connects our, our sense of a righteousness that we long for to our justification. And really those two words mean essentially the same thing. To be justified before God means that God has declared us and counted us righteous. In fact, if you look at our text that we're going to read and work our way through in a moment, you're going to see these terms show up and again and again. Verse 10 says, with a heart one believes and is justified. That could also be translated counted righteous in the right before God. He's talking about salvation right in there too. They are connected together. You see this word saved several times in this passage. Verse 9 says you will be saved. Verse 10 says, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so to be righteous means to be justified and to be right before God. And that means that requires that we be saved. And interestingly enough, for some of us especially, Paul's going to connect that salvation in verse 11 to having no shame. He says, for everyone who believes in him, remember, if you believe, you'll be saved. If you believe, you'll be justified. In verse 11, he says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And I'm thinking that maybe that word is for someone here today who has lived their whole life filled with shame, wondering how they cannot be ashamed See, when you look at all of this, what I'm trying to get across to you is this. Everything comes down to our righteousness. And in the end, as we, we saw last week, there are only two ways to be righteous. Either we try to establish our own righteousness, which we called last week self-righteousness, or we submit to God's righteousness in Jesus. And if you missed that last week, you might want to go back and listen online. And maybe you're not a Christ follower. or Maybe this is something new to you. Maybe you're, you're hearing some of this and you sort of kind of checked out already. You're thinking, I don't think this really matters for my life. I mean, I got to go to work tomorrow and I got to pay bills next week. And I got to deal with the relationships in my, my life. And I'm thinking about what I'm going to do in 2024 and beyond. Lots of other things. This doesn't apply to me at all. Maybe you're thinking. But I'm telling you it does apply to you. No one escapes this because we are hardwired to know that we are okay. That we are accepted that we are loved. And there is not a person in this room who doesn't want that and desperately long for that every day of their lives. And so I just want to ask you as we're digging into what Paul is saying here, a simple question. It's a diagnostic question. It's simple, but it's also profound. And the question is this for you to answer for yourself. How do I know I'm okay? How do I know 
Do you ever ask yourself that question? I mean, explicitly, you're really asking yourself that question all the time, whether it's conscious or not. And, and typically, whether you're a Christian or not, when you hear that question where your mind goes is you, you go to the things you do or the things that you've achieved or maybe on the flip side of that, the things you haven't done that you think you should have done, the things you haven't achieved but you think you should have achieved. And what that shows you, and here's what you need to understand, is that you are relying on your self-righteousness for a sense of being okay, of being in the right. And see, it just works like this. We all know it. If someone loves us, we're good. If we're making enough money, we're good. If we finally got that promotion or we bought that house, we're good. But have you ever noticed that even when you get all of those things, there's still that emptiness, that ache. You're still wondering sometimes and you still will find yourself right back where you were. And there's, there's a challenge on the other side of this because some of us, some of us are doing really, really well on all of these things. Some of us, we, we've achieved, we, we, we've acquired, we, we have the relationships, we have the wealth, we have the, you know, the money, whatever it is that we were looking for. And the challenge is this, the more self-satisfied uh, you are, the more self-righteous you will tend to be and the less you will see your need for Jesus and the further you will get from God because you're relying on your self-righteousness, not on his righteousness. I'll just give you kind of an example of how that works. And, you know, sometimes people look around and they, they, they say, you know, people that are wealthy, people that are educated, they're not often Christians. You ever notice that? And the reason for that is not because... They're smarter than Jesus. It's not because they have figured out how life works. The reason is simply this. They have become blinded by the layers of self-made righteousness in their lives. And they look at themselves and they think they're all good and they don't need anything else. And they're convinced they're fine. Because self-righteousness is always a spiritually blinding condition. It's the reason why Jesus once said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because self-righteousness blinds us. And ultimately, self-righteousness is spiritual suicide. But it is interesting. You can also look around and at the same time see people who are wealthy and successful in the eyes of the world. And they are Christ followers because they have come to realize that even though they have all these things the world tells us we must have, they know those things don't satisfy. They know that those things won't fulfill what they're looking for. They have come to know that only Jesus fills that ache. Only Jesus satisfies their souls. And so this is the issue that we all face in our lives. This is the issue that, that Paul was addressing 2,000 years ago. It's the issue that unbelieving Jewish people had as he was writing to them. It's the issue that unbelieving people in our culture have today. It's also the issue that we as Christ followers often face in, in trying to establish our own self-righteousness. And some of you have lived there, haven't you? 
Even while you're coming to church, even while you've trusted in Christ, even while you've professed your faith in him, you're still kind of on that treadmill thinking that somehow God accepts you because of what you do and it steals your joy. It, it, it takes away your peace. It creates fear in your life. It keeps you from walking closely to Jesus. You, you find yourself thinking that my Christianity is just a bunch of you know, to-do lists, empty to-do lists and And when that happens, you know what happens if you say you're a Christ follower? You end up going back to the world. You end up going back to those things you thought you'd left behind because the things you have found in Christianity, you think they're not really fulfilling me. But the thing is, it's not real Christianity. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to to set us uh, free to just go back to our self-righteousness. He came to set us free from that self-righteousness. He came to set us free from living in these cages, you know, locked in with fear uh, of our own making, wondering always, if, am I right with God? Am I going to be okay? He came to set us free. And he says, those who I have set free are free indeed. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that's where we ended And that's what Paul is saying in that last verse we looked at that I want to remind you of, chapter 10, verse 4. Paul is saying there that Christ is the end of the law. In other words, the fulfillment of the law, the goal, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is incredibly good news, we said. And if last week maybe you were hearing what Paul was saying and maybe wanting Paul to make it more clear, that's what he's going to do today. In verses 5 through 13, he's, he's going to tell us, and I was just trying to think, how do I describe what Paul is saying in these verses? And I thought, I can't make it any simpler than just to say Paul is talking about how to be saved. How to be saved. There's three things that Paul tells us to do. And if you aren't saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you've never surrendered your life to him, placed your trust in him, then this is what you need to do in your life. And if you have been saved, then this is what you need to remind yourself of every day. This is what you need to rejoice in every day. This is what you need to simply live your life in every day because this is what it means to walk with him. I'm gonna give you three things that I think Paul is telling us. And the first is something you have to stop doing. He says in the first verses, stop trying to earn your salvation. That's in verses five through seven. Paul Paul is just reminding us as we've been seeing on the one hand, you could try to earn righteousness by the law, you know, by being a good person, doing the right things, being nice, being sincere, being honest. You could do that. But Paul says that doesn't work. And this is what he says in verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And if you look at your notes in your Bible, you may see that he's quoting Deuteronomy 18.5, where Moses is setting out for the people of Israel this principle that perfect obedience to God's law will lead to eternal life, Right? That's the deal. God says, if you obey my law perfectly, you you can have eternal life. But there's a big problem with that. Anybody know what it is? No one does that. No one can do that. No one will ever do that because we all sin. That's what Paul spent so much time at the beginning of Romans trying to establish, right? Those first three chapters that we're all sinners. 
just want to check and make sure we're all on the same page here. Are we all sinners? Say amen. amen. Yeah, we're all sinners. Every one of us. Paul says in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. He says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that means no one can get saved in this way. No one. Because no one will ever obey God's law perfectly. Paul even says at one point in the letter to the Galatians, this is chapter 5, verse 3, every person who accepts circumcision, because there were people who were thinking they'd go back to the law, he he says if you accept circumcision, which is just one part, one little part uh, of God's law in the Old Testament, he says if you accept that and you're trying to get righteous through doing that, then you're obligated to live by all of the law. In other words... He says, if you want righteousness from the law, you have to keep that law perfectly and you are never going to do that. And so Paul is saying, the sooner we give that up, up that pursuit, the better because it is a dead end. Now, if you've been at church very long, you know we, we don't believe that. But I want to remind you, the sad reality is that most people in our worlds who don't know Jesus, they think that this is what makes you right with God. Just being a good person, don't they? Isn't that what you encounter? I mean, almost any time that I'm talking with someone who who doesn't believe and I ask them a question like this, how do you think you get right with God? They pretty much always answer, well, you gotta be a good person. But I also wanna remind you that this is a problem for many of us as Christ followers because this impulse to establish our self-righteousness is part of our sinful nature and our fallenness doesn't go away. And so even when we come to Jesus Christ and receive his salvation, it's so easy for us to fall back into thinking that we can somehow earn God's favor by being good. This is really what's going on in your life every time you find yourself thinking, you know, I've done something wrong. God's probably mad at me. I better do some good things. And I bet you a whole lot of us thought that sometime during the last week. Or, or maybe it works like this for you. Some of you, when you realize you've sinned, you know the Bible says you could ask him forgiveness and the Bible promises that you will immediately be forgiven, right? And yet some of you think, I, I got to do some right stuff good things first, and then I'll ask him. I, or I got to feel bad for a while, then I'll ask him. And these are, I see some of you are smiling out there because you're going, uh-huh, yeah. yeah you're going, yeah, yeah. My, my, my husband does that all the time. Um, <laughs> but we, we all do those things because this is our, our, our bent. And, and we as Christians, we can we can live in our lives as though our standing with God is based on our, our own goodness, even while we're telling other people we're saved by grace alone, by, by faith alone. And so we, we need to be aware of this, this tendency. And if we aren't, it'll devastate our relationship with the, the Lord. We, we have to deal with this feeling that I, I, I need to do more so that God will love me better. This feeling I could have done better than I did, so I've got to do more. You know, some of you, it comes down to this question of how are you saved? Like, you, you think you've been saved a hundred times. You, you think I got to keep praying that prayer again. Some of you, you, you were led to faith in Christ and someone told you 
how to pray. You prayed what's often called the sinner's prayer, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and then you wonder, did I pray the prayer right? I'm going to pray it again. And then you pray it again, and then a little bit farther down the road, you're thinking, I must not have done it right that time either, so I'm going to pray it again, right? How many of you, I'm not going to ask you if you have ever done that, but you know someone else who's done that? (laughs) See, this is this impulse that we all struggle with to earn our own righteousness with God, our own standing with God, and and it's just a part of living in a broken, fallen world where we can even as those with orthodox doctrine believe in our heads that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and yet in our lives live as if it's up to us to be a good person. So we need to get honest with ourselves and not just say what we're supposed to say we need to get honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, am I living this out in my, my life? Am I, am I actually living like someone who's, who's trying to earn their righteousness with God? Or am I living as someone who has been made righteous in Jesus apart from anything I've done? And that's what Paul is, is telling us. He, he begins to make the contrast between these two ways really explicit in, in verse uh, 6 and 7. He's telling us good news here. He's quoting again from Deuteronomy. Uh, now it's chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. And what he's doing is showing us that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law. And this is what he writes in verse uh, 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And if you, you go back to Deuteronomy 30, you're going to see that Moses is telling the Israelite people that God's law was God's gracious gift to his people. And he tells them back then that they didn't need to like try to go up to heaven or they didn't need to try to cross the sea. They didn't need to do heroic deeds to discover God's will for their lives. It was a way of saying, you don't need to do the law to earn God's favor. Moses was saying to them that God in his goodness gave them the law and no other nations got that gift. It was a great gift of grace. The law showed them how to live. It showed them how to worship. It, it showed them how to know God. And Moses was saying to them, you don't, you don't have to work to get this. It's close. It's right here. I'm holding it out to you. He was saying, you don't have to guess about it. You just have to receive it. And I'll put it like this for us today. If, you, if you've never figured this out, righteousness is not a quest. It's not an adventure you go on where you have great heroic deeds and you earn, you know, you earn the quest. I mean, some of you who play games, video games all the time, you'll know what I'm talking about here. This is not about getting to another level. <laughs> This is, this is something that is given to us. Paul says you don't need to go up uh, to heaven in your zeal for righteousness. You don't need to reach down into the depths of your heart, you know, for willpower to obey. Jesus has already done it all. Jesus has already gifted you his righteousness. And he did that because Jesus already came down from heaven in the incarnation. He came for you. And Jesus already went down into the abyss of death for you. 
He conquered sin and death in his resurrection for you. So put it like this, Southwinds, you are not saved by your zeal for him. You are saved by his zeal for you. And he's already done it. It's already been done. There's nothing more to be done. Are you, are you picking up here what I'm putting down? I just want to check. John Calvin, the reformer, said the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. That's the first step to being saved. And as long as you're holding on to your self-righteousness, you'll never be able to receive Christ's righteousness, and therefore you'll never be able to be saved. So stop trying to earn it. Instead, second, simply, Paul says, receive the salvation found in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about in verses 8 through 10. If you look at verse 8, he's still connecting back to Deuteronomy, and, and he says in verse 8, but what does it say? And he quotes what Moses said back in Deuteronomy. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And then Paul's commentary on that is, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Do you see what he's doing? Just as God's law was once come near to God's people, so now the fulfillment of God's law, which is Christ, go back to verse 4, that righteousness that is found by faith in Christ alone, it is also near Salvation is near. Salvation is not far away from any one of us. It's accessible to everyone. That's what Paul's saying. It's not a mystery. You you don't have to work to get it. Paul says, it's right here. He's saying, I'm offering it to you. He's saying, Jesus has already come and Jesus has brought it near and brought it close. It's accessible right now by faith. And I just want to pause for a moment and ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That all you need to be right with God is accessible, that it's available, that it's right in front of you, within reach, that you have already all that you need, that you don't have to listen to a podcast, that you don't have to watch a series of videos on YouTube, that you don't have to read books, It is here, and some of you don't believe it. Some of you think, i got to do more. Some of you think, well, it cannot be that easy. And I'm telling you, the only reason you think that is because you're trying to establish your own righteousness. And so go back to number one. Stop trying to earn it and come back to number two. Simply receive the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ It is here, it is near, it is available, it is acceptable. Paul is saying, I'm just offering this perfect righteousness from God to you. You can have it, you can be in the right before him. It's not a mystery, it is right here. It is near and is found in Jesus by faith. That's what Paul is saying. And just think when you you get that of the freedom, it breathes into your soul to be able to say, I am righteous before God covered in the righteousness of the Savior, apart from any of my righteousness, so I can always know Jesus loves me, that he is my friend, that he's my advocate, that he's my ally. He knows I need help. And here's what it also is telling us. Listen, it is telling us that in our darkest and biggest failures, he is close by, not far away. 
When we fail him terribly, he is not surprised. He is with us even in the dark. He's not running away in disgust like some of us think. In in those tender, traumatic places of our lives, he is most tender to us because that is the kind of God that he is. He knows how hopeless we are left to ourselves, and that is why he came. And and I know it's hard for some of us to believe that, that God is more forgiving to us than we are to ourselves, but it's true. In fact, I would say that the process of walking with Jesus in discipleship is in many regards the process of pressing that truth more deeply into our souls day by day until we believe it, that I am righteous in Christ, that I am loved. And some of you don't really quite believe that. Where you get to this place where you can say, by his grace, I know he is with me and he will never leave me. That I am his and he is mine and no one can take me out of his hand. And some of you are saying, Mike, are, are, you, are you saying I can just receive his love and live out of his love? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You don't earn it. You, you just receive it. And in fact, when you receive that, that, that uh, righteousness he gives you by his grace becomes the atmosphere uh, of love and safety that we all need to grow and change and draw nearer to him. See, being declared righteous doesn't mean we become perfect, right? Anybody sitting next to a perfect person in the room right now? If, if you are, let's just let us know so we can... Like we don't become perfect, but it gives us this atmosphere of safety in which we can, we can uproot our own self-righteousness so we become more like him, so we can experience the life he wants to give us, so we no longer put hope in our own goodness because that's based on us. We no longer put hope in religious duties, doing good things because that's based on us. We no longer put hope in our promises to do better next time. How many times have you said, I'll just do better next time, God, but we don't put our hope there because that's based on us. We look to Jesus and we say, I got nothing. I got nothing. Jesus, will you cover me? I can't make it on my own, Jesus. I need your righteousness and grace and mercy. And friends, that is what sets us free. That is what allows us to breathe. Now, if you're hearing this and thinking, well, how can I get access to this, this and your natural reflex is to think, well, what do I need to do? Certainly something I need to do. Paul says, no, just believe, just believe. And friends, faith is not a work. Faith is not something we do. Faith is just the outstretched hand of the heart by which we receive the gift of his righteousness. That's all. Have you done that? Paul tells you exactly how that happens in verses 9 and 10. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here, friend, that's a promise. In verse 10, he kind of says the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And you need to understand, let me unpack this for a moment. Paul is talking about two things here. First of all, the content of saving faith. There's content to it. We have to believe that Jesus is God. 
We have to believe that God the Father raised him from the dead. He is not merely a man. He's not just a lowercase g God. (laughs) He wasn't a man who became God as some teach. He is God, second person of the Trinity who took on human nature, became a man to seek and save the lost, to give us his righteousness, to forgive our unrighteousness. And he's not only God, Paul says, but he also rose from the dead And the New Testament tells us that Jesus' resurrection validates everything he ever said and ever taught. It's all true. The resurrection is kind of like this quintessential exclamation mark on Jesus' teaching and Jesus' ministry. And and it's just telling us we don't get to God on our own. We never can. And so God came for us to make us his own. That's how committed he is to us. So their saving faith has content. There is something we believe. It's not just a feeling of uh, of faith. And Paul also highlights this by talking about the character of saving faith. It begins in the heart. It's confessed with the mouth. See, when the Bible speaks about the heart, we, we hear heart and we think emotions. We think feelings. But the Bible, when it uses the term heart, is talking about the governing center of, of who we are. You cannot go more deeply into yourself than into your heart. Your heart is like the epicenter of your entire being. Your heart is really who you are. And that's where saving faith originates from the inside from the heart. It is this deep internal relational trust. It's not a blind leap. Faith is not wishful thinking as some people claim. Faith is not believing despite the evidence. This word faith in in the Greek means the state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one who is trusted. And I actually think for many of us, the word trust might capture the idea in English better uh, than the word faith. It might capture the idea of what is the essence of biblical faith. This is this living trust. I'm going to explain just real briefly what saving faith is. And there's like three interlocking parts. First of all, there's knowledge. I've already kind of alluded to that. There's content to faith, things we need to know about God and humanity, about Jesus and the cross, about the gospel. But it's more than that because you can know stuff and it doesn't change your life, right? Quick example. How many of you know really well how you should eat? (laughs) But it hasn't changed your life. Would you please raise your hands right now? Confession is like we can know lots of things that we don't do, right? So you can know things, and you got to know things, but it's not enough. The second component is, is what is called assent, and this is about agreement. And so you can have knowledge, and then on top of that, you, you need to agree to the truth. But even that's not enough. In James chapter 2, James says that the demons, like they know who God is, right? But, but, but they don't, it hasn't changed who they are. And so you can agree with some things. And there may be some of you here today who have heard the truth and you believe the truth, you think, but it's all in your head. You've just agreed to it. It hasn't really changed your life. And you don't have biblical faith because there's a third thing. You have to place a living trust in what you know and assent to. Living trust, really, it's just like that song we sang right before the message. It's about surrender, Living trust is a heart-level surrender to God and all he is for us in Jesus. 
Some people have used the illustration of an airplane, and you know you can know stuff about an airplane. You can learn, you know, that it has wings and how high it flies and how fast it flies. But the real question about trusting an airplane is what you got to get on the plane, right? You, you got to board. That's saving faith. And the real question about Jesus. It's not just do you know what the Bible says about him, not just do you agree with those things, but do you gladly surrender to him? Will you go all in on Jesus? Will you quit trying to earn your righteousness and trust in his righteousness? That, that, that's the question that is being placed before us. Will you simply receive, receive what Jesus has done for us? through his life and his death and his resurrection. Now, Paul draws all of this together in the last three verses, verses 11 through 13. And he says that this righteousness by faith that, that we, we don't have to work for, but we simply have to receive. He says it's available to anyone everywhere. And therefore, we should rest in God's promise of salvation. See, what salvation means as we receive this gift that God has given us and then we, we simply accept it and we rest in it. Jesus is not only accessible, he's available to everyone. Sometimes I think, I've talked to people who say, okay, that sounds good. And I know the kind of people exactly that God would wanna give that kind of grace to, but I don't know if that's me. And Paul says, no, no, no. Paul says, I am talking to everyone. In verse 11, he's again quoting from the Old Testament, this is Isaiah 28, 16. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone. So those who trust in Jesus, who stop trusting in their works, they will not be put to shame. That is a promise of God. There is no shame in Christ. And the shame that he is explicitly referring to here is the, the regret and the guilt and the sadness that will be experienced by those who are judged on the last day because they did not trust in Christ. But for those of us who have trust in Christ, Paul is saying we have a shame-free future in store. Does that sound good? See, if you're in Christ... It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what you're wrestling with in your present. If you're in Christ, you can wake up every morning knowing, I have a shame-free future in store. No matter how much guilt or frustration or shame you experience today, now, on that day, one day, there will be no more shame. There will be no more guilt. And that day is coming, friends. It is coming. It is just around the bend. Your shame-free future is waiting for you, and it will last forever. God promises. God promises. See, how are you, are you trusting in him? You know, um, some, sometimes... Uh, People struggle with this because of our frailty, our human frailty. There's another illustration uh, that I like to use sometimes about salvation, and it'll be really applicable for you, most of you right now. It's that chair you're sitting in. That, that chair you're sitting in right now is a good picture of, of what saving faith is all about because you are trusting right now, aren't you, that that chair will hold you up. 
you have transferred your trust from your legs to that chair. You're not standing in righteousness of your own self. You're trusting in the chair, in this case, to hold you up. Just think about it. Sometimes when you're finding yourself questioning your salvation, you just may need to remember that. Some of you sometimes will say, I, I don't remember when I trusted Christ. I, I don't remember the prayer that I prayed. I'm not sure I prayed the prayer the right way. Think about it like this. Does it matter how you talk to the chair? Do you have to tell the chair, oh, chair, I trust you. And I will keep trusting you, chair, to hold me up as long as that guy up in the stage keeps talking. You don't have to talk to the chair, do you? It doesn't matter what you say to the chair. You are demonstrating your, your trust by simply trusting and surrendering and accepting what, what that, that, that chair is doing for you. That's the way it is with Christ. So right now, are you sitting in him? Right now, are you resting in him? Are you resting in acceptance? Or are you trying to stand in your own self-righteousness? You know, sometimes people will say that Christianity is, is exclusive and it, it's exclusionary. And I want to address that because Paul is talking about something that's universal here when he says everyone, everyone, everyone. He says that this, this method of salvation that he's describing, it actually creates the most inclusive community the world has ever seen. Not exclusive. Because he says everyone who puts their trust in God to save them will be saved. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, he goes on to say, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is inclusive because everyone can be saved. The righteousness that saves does not distinguish by any human conditions, by ethnicity, education level, religious history, moral blamelessness, wealth, poverty, whatever, everyone who calls on God's name will be saved. The gospel is the most inclusive religious message ever, creating the most inclusive community that has ever existed on earth. And some of you are going, wait a minute. Like, how can that be? Because you believe there's only one way to be saved. That doesn't sound very inclusive. That sounds exclusive. Well, let me respond to that. First of all, you need to realize that all religious claims are inherently exclusive. For example, some of us maybe, but you know people if it's not you, who say, I think only good people of every religion go to heaven, right? That sounds pretty inclusive, doesn't it? But who have you excluded? Bad people, right? You, you don't think... You don't think bad people should go to heaven, right? Only, only good people. And probably you think that you should define good and bad. And I suppose for most of us, racists and misogynists, child molesters are on that list. Like if you're kind of a conservative person culturally, you might put what you consider sexually deviant people on that list. Or maybe if you're more progressive in our culture, you put people who judge others 
and who judge other people's sexuality, you put them on that list. But no one, no one looks at the rapist and the racist and says, well, my truth says you shouldn't do that, but you know, that's your truth. And I respect that. See, here's the thing. We all have a list, don't we? Say, I have a list. Everybody's got a list. We all have a list of what's good and what's right and what's not. Everybody has a list of who's in and who's out. So everybody is exclusive. But here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus offers a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us, that God gives salvation as a gift to anyone, to everyone, to all of us who will repent and receive it in humility and in faith. And that produces a totally different kind of exclusivity It's what someone has called a humble exclusivity. I don't know if you know this, but what made the gospel in the first century scandalous was not who it excluded, but who it included. You go back to Paul's background and as a a conservative Jewish man, a Pharisee, uh, according to Jewish traditions at that time, we're told that every morning Jewish men would pray a prayer, something like this, thank God that I am not a a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I don't think we pray that anymore, right? But they did. And it's a fascinating thing. If you go to the book of Acts, and assuming that Paul probably prayed that prayer, you go to the book of Acts, and you go to Acts 16, and you go to the place where Paul, for the first time, takes the gospel to the continent of Europe, to the city of Philippi. And, and, and you will see as he shares the gospel that the first three people who trust in Jesus Christ and convert to faith faith in him are a woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile man. And I sometimes wonder if the Holy Spirit was chuckling up in heaven at Paul, the Pharisee. See, only the gospel produces this kind of inclusivity, which is actually why the gospel has produced the most demographically inclusive community the world has ever seen. Think about this when you think about other religions. Islam is still to this day predominantly Arab. To become a Muslim, if you know anything about Islam, you you basically have to become culturally Arab. You you can't read. They, They say the Quran truly except in Arabic. You you really have to become Arab. Buddhism is still predominantly East Asian. Hinduism is still predominantly South Asian. But if you check, just go look it up on the internet, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Christianity is now pretty much evenly split between Europe, North America, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And it is growing the fastest in Latin America and Asia and Africa See, like every other religious claim, Christianity is exclusive, yes, but it is the most inclusive exclusivity that has ever existed in the history of this world. And Paul just says, all people everywhere can receive this righteousness of Jesus by faith. What did you receive? Did you notice in verse 12, Paul says riches. Some of you think that if you come to Jesus, he's gonna take away all the good things in your life. I don't know how you define the good things. I do know that what Jesus will give you in place of whatever you think is good is infinitely better. He wants to give you his riches. He wants to give you God himself. 
He wants to give you freedom and peace and joy and purpose and significance. He, he wants to give you what you can only find in him. And he promises if you will believe, you will receive it. Verse 13 again, Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is everyone. This is for everyone. No one is excluded. Every one of you can receive it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Every one of you can receive it. And it might seem too good to be true, but it is true. Friends, this is not about measuring up or about jumping through hoops or about checking off boxes. It's not about performance. It is not. We can't. We can stop that. We can lay that down and we can come to Jesus and receive the gift that he wants to give us. We can receive the gift that he died to give us. We can receive it. It's his righteousness. His righteousness. And when you receive it, it changes everything. Your sins are forgiven. Your life has purpose and meaning. You have strength and joy to face all the challenges in life. And you know no matter what happens in this world, you have the hope of eternity where where God will one day make all things right. This is how to be saved. Paul is telling us in these verses And so my question that I just want to leave you with is, if you've never trusted him, will you? If you've never received his righteousness, setting aside your self-righteousness, will you? If you've never been saved, this is how. Will you be saved today? Paul in another letter says, today is the day of salvation. He says, all who want to can come, will you receive Jesus today? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, you are so good and we are reminded today of your goodness to us. Lord, we're reminded of how often we get confused and we move to thinking that somehow, some way we must please you in order to earn your love, in order to gain your favor. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, help us just to lay all that aside and simply each day to remember that you've given us your love and your grace and your freedom and your forgiveness and it is just all out of the overflow of your your wonderful life and what Jesus has done and we don't have to earn it we simply have to receive it Lord we simply simply need to live out of it and Lord I I want to pray specifically for anyone here who's never trusted you and maybe right now they're wrestling with what they've just heard and Maybe it seems new, but maybe, Lord, it seems hopeful. Maybe, Lord, they hear it and, and right now there's a part of them thinking, I, I want that. Lord, open their eyes 
open their hearts. Lord, help them to receive all that you have done for them. And Lord, even to do it now today. Lord, you love us. And the reason we know you love us is you gave your son Jesus and he died for us. And so we trust you 